This podcast was recorded live at RBC Waterpark Place. Good afternoon and welcome to uh, RBC Disruptors. I'm John Stackhouse. It's my pleasure to hold our monthly conversations on technology and how it's changing everything around us. And we're so lucky today to have with us a really interesting Canadian, Al Lindsay, who was part of the team that created Alexa. We'll get into a bit of Al's history here, but he was employee number three at Alexa, which is an organization now has 8,000 people. Al will tell us a bit about his background, but of course he's based in Seattle. Al's been at Amazon for 14 years. He's going to tell us a lot about what they're doing today and what they're thinking about doing a little bit. Uh, But Al, welcome to RBC and RBC Disruptors. Thanks, John. I'm happy to be here. We'd like to kick off our conversations with just quick, snappy questions. So I'm going to throw a few at you and get some rapid-fire responses. First, the name Alexa. Where did it come from? It's a bit of a nod to the Library of Alexandria, which is halls of knowledge. So think about the knowledge of everything in the world being in one place. Most common question Alexa gets? Marriage proposals, I think, are right up there. Um, (laughs) Literally millions of times a week, someone says, Alexa, will you marry me, to, to their device. Is the answer always the same? Uh, No. (laughs) I I think in the beginning it probably was, but we've gotten a little more variant in our responses. I didn't know that. What's the the most interesting variant? I actually don't know. You'll have to try it if you want. I'll try it, yeah. That's after the show. Maybe you'll get lucky and Uh, say yes. How how many languages does uh, Alexa speak? Somewhere between 8 and 10. We've launched in in Europe. We've hit Italy, Spain, France, Germany, UK English. Um, We have an Indian... English voice, which speaks to you in English but with an Indian accent, Japanese and Australian and New Zealand variants, and we recently launched Canadian French. And we also have a Canadian English voice, which is different than our, our U.S. English voice. <laughs> Some of you may have experienced those differences, I gather, yeah. from the response in the audience. Yeah. Um, yeah, I forgot to mention Mexican Spanish as well. Most challenging voice to engineer? I would say... Of um, most language, most challenging language. Language. Yeah. Jap- Japanese is uniquely challenging, um, for those of you who are familiar with the language, in both input and output. So there's a lot of uh, ambiguity in understanding how to pronounce things where the same words might be pronounced uh, multiple different ways on the output side and on the language understanding side. It's just a totally different character set, and it's challenging, uniquely challenging. Yeah, that's fascinating. So Al, you, uh, as I said, you're, you're, you're Canadian. You uh, worked in Ottawa. There used to be this company called Nortel, uh, <laughs> people remember it. Uh, Nortel was one of the great Canadian companies in its day. And then you were involved in a number of startups and finally moved to, uh, to Amazon. What took you, what took you there? Um, so I actually worked at the Big Nerd Ranch, Bell Northern Research, before it was Nortel. I think when the dot-com bubble burst, it actually had large effects on the telecom industry uh, in the Ottawa Valley. So a lot of the funding for startups went away overnight. There was a, a lot of job loss. So I just found myself looking for a new opportunity uh, and realizing I would have to leave the Ottawa area. By chance, Amazon happened to be interviewing locally for jobs in Seattle, but they like to come to cities and interview uh, to make it sort of a lower barrier for you to come and find out what they're all about, kind of get you hooked. So I just went out of curiosity to see what they might be able to offer. Uh, and this was 2004, so in my mind they were still just a website that sold books. And it was so fascinating through the interview process. They flew me out to Seattle with my family. We were hooked right away. It was just sort of a quite a change to go from the winters of Ottawa to the West Coast. So, and then I, As I said in the, uh, in the introduction, you were uh, employee number three on the Alexa project. What did the team have in mind? First of all, 
interestingly, when I took the job, I had no idea what I was going to be doing other than leading an engineering team. The gentleman who was starting the initiative had been Jeff's uh, TA or sort of shadow for the previous 18 months. So Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Bezos. Bezos. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and so this was sort of a, a project that Jeff wanted to get going, and he picked someone who was highly trusted to start it from scratch. And so he was looking for someone to build and lead the engineering and science organization and go and solve the, the technical challenges that would be needed to build the product, which I'll, I'll mention in a minute. But he, it, it was so under wraps that he couldn't even tell me what it would be. So I, I remember the, the pitch was along the lines of, I can tell you it involves speech and, and voice, but how it's used and why it's in the product, I can't tell you. You'll just have to take it on faith that this is going to be huge, really important to Amazon, and uh, you'll have a lot of fun. So... I had to kind of take a leap and uh, take the job without knowing what I'd be doing. But the, the, the product that uh, Jeff wanted him to build was effectively a, a computer that was entirely cloud-based, uh, where its interface was, was voice. So we often you know, reference the Star Trek computer as the, as the inspiration for, for Alexa, the idea that you can just speak in a natural way to a computer and have it do the things you want it to do, you know, as, as the North Star of where we want to get to. So that was the vision from the start. And did the team at that time know how big it would become? Oh, no. No, we, we were a startup. So I, I, I think you can draw a lot of analogies to, to any startup in tech. We had, we had no idea if we would be successful, what the final shape of the product may end up being, how customers might respond to it. We were focused on solving our hard challenges and trying to build a product that would be uh, compelling or an experience that would be compelling for our consumers. It's interesting you mentioned Star Trek because voice has been around for, 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 for decades. I think IBM claims to have launched the first uh, voice platform in the early 1960s. What were the engineering challenges, uh, the biggest ones in those initial years? Speech recognition, uh, speech understanding definitely are high up there. It was also around in the 90s, by the way. I think Canada played a pivotal role. The, the team I worked on at Bell Northern Research was actually the speech recognition team doing directory assistance 411 mm. and the first instance of what city is that a residential address was actually built in Canada uh, at, at Bell Northern Research and deployed in the U.S. networks first. But understanding language is definitely the biggest challenge. Um, but the main difference being that most speech systems that had been built previously were meant for what we would call close talk. Uh, the microphone's very close to your mouth and that means you have a very strong signal to noise uh, ratio your voice is the loudest thing making its way into the microphone. The vision for an ambient computer that you can just speak to from across the room where the strength of your voice drops off dramatically and all of the background noises and competing sounds in the room uh, start to drown you out. Being able to understand that far field speech, speech rec recognition in the far field, was a challenge that not only was difficult and daunting at the onset, but also uh, well understood in the science community to be intractable. So it was, it was mission impossible in a lot of ways to go and solve Farfield. And in fact, this, this came through a lot in some of the early hires I made where I too had to convince people to join Amazon to work in speech, folks with PhDs in speech recognition, without being able to tell them what we were doing. And of course, so they just assumed they were going to be speech-enabling shopping on a website somewhere. So it was hard to sell them. But when they got in and I did the reveal and I'm like, this is what we're building, they're like, oh, that'll never work. <laughs> um, you, don't you know, like, Farfield speech recognition is like this impossible problem. So um, I'd say Farfield speech recognition was sort of at the forefront of our, our largest challenges. And in lay terms, what was the biggest leap you made uh, as an engineer to, to enable Farfield? I think the, the enabling technologies are still very much proprietary. <laughs> so in order to say how we solved it, I, I, I can't really say a lot about that. I'd say there was a lot of, uh, there was in equal amounts of invention, 
uh, and perspiration. So a lot of pushing rocks up hills and trying things that failed, a lot of failure along the way, and then a number of inventions that enabled us to, to get over the hump. Oh, that's a great answer. We talked a lot at Disruptors about the importance of failure and constantly learning. So that's a great illustration of the rewards of that. I guess one of the earlier decisions also would have been around Alexa's personality. And curious how you come to grips with that as a, as, as a team to give the personality who we all kind of accept as part of our lives now. In the beginning, we weren't actually that focused on personality. So Alexa was kind of, uh, didn't have a lot of quirks and some of the things that have evolved Early response from customers showed that they really leaned into this notion of, um, you know, Alexa as a, as a human. Um, and so we started to do more of it over time and sort of evolved the personality. Her personality, the thing we were aiming for is uh, if you're going to talk to a virtual assistant, an artificial intelligence, you want it to be smart. You want it to be helpful, some, someone you can trust. And as it turns out, people really value, you know, a little bit of fun and humor um, mixed in there as well. So I'd say, you know, Alexa is, is equal parts of, of all of those attributes. And this, this is part of Amazon's persona, uh, not, not persona, but uh, Amazon's uh, I think it does. I think it does echo a lot of, you know, Amazon's, uh, the voice of Amazon, if you will. You know, you think we're fairly matter-of-fact and hopefully trustworthy and transparent, but also quirky and funny at times, right? Hard to believe that uh, Echo came out only four years ago <laughs> on a mass, mass scale. What have been some of the bigger surprises since you've gone mass? I think, I mean, even just the initial launch was surprising. I think we were really shocked and, and delighted by the outpouring of positive response from the early adopters. We did a limited rollout <clears throat> where it was invitation only. Um, you could ask to be invited, and then we would gradually expand our our customer base, and those early customers were really strong providers of feedback via the app itself or written feedback or CS or even just um, materials we found on the web. So there was a lot of discussion amongst the early adopters about uh, what they loved and what they didn't love and things they wanted to see. And that was sort of the beginning of how do we incorporate more and more of what our customers want to see um, over time. We spent a lot of effort trying to understand what our what the biggest gaps are, what customers most want to see, and how to fill them in quickly so that Alexa is more and more capable. Right. So as I understand it, we still, most of us ask kind of a fairly narrow range of questions. Music, I think, is uh, maybe one or two, weather, set the alarm. Uh, what, what are we missing? Um, <laughs> a lot, yeah. obviously. The depth of capabilities of Alexa are huge and growing every day. And actually, we have dedicated programs now in trying to help surface to consumers what, what capabilities Alexa has because especially for what we call the headless devices, the original Echo, which doesn't have a screen, it's really hard to convey to someone what you're capable of doing. The devices with screens, you have a little more real estate to work with like you do on a phone and you can, you can surface those capabilities. But in a headless one, you have to be a little more conversational in how you uh, make things known. So for example, we have a capability where maybe you just finished playing a game from a, from a third-party skill and ask, an Alexa skill kit skill, and uh, we, we recommend to you, maybe if you enjoyed playing that game, you might enjoy this other skill, which is similar, and put that in front of the consumer and allow them to sort of experiment and learn about new things that Alexa can do. So we're, we're doing more and more of that proactive, letting, letting folks know in a moment where it might actually be applicable about those capabilities. So you're working through a recipe, did you know you can well, set a timer or do conversions on units from you know, cups to milliliters, that kind of thing. So this is more of a sociology question than an engineering one, but since you've been at Alexa from day one, really, are you detecting changes in human behavior 
because of our interaction now with voice technology? Absolutely. Um, and I'd say it's affected my own interaction. It's kind of interesting when you look back at, again, when I was doing the reveals to new hire employees or um, when we first launched the product, you'll find lots of this in the press. A lot of people ask, why do I need this? I have my iPhone in my pocket. It's a powerful computer. It has Siri. I can talk to it, but I don't want to. You know, I can do everything I want to do by tapping glass. For me, the first aha moment was listening to music. I use, you know, sort of high-end cloud-connected computers that originally had a dedicated controller and then later an app. And so when I, when I come in the room and I want to listen to music, I get out my phone, I unlock it, I navigate to the home screen because who knows where I left off, mm. find the app, open the app, wait five seconds for the app to open, choose the speaker I want to target, go browse for some music. Probably 30, 40 seconds have gone by before uh, music is coming from the speakers. Uh, when I had the first prototype in my, in my kitchen, I'd walk in and I'd say, you know, play songs by Sting. And music would begin within two seconds, streaming from the speaker. And so for a period of about two years, I had a house full of high-end speakers that never got used. Because the friction of actually getting at the music to play through those speakers until we actually did, the, did some integrations with these uh, types of companies was so high, I just didn't want to get out my phone. And so for the first time in my life, I found myself saying, the phone, phone is inconvenient. Tapping on glass is actually not that convenient. Navigating through an app model where everything's compartmentalized takes time and effort, and it's not the most convenient thing. And that, that was yet another paradigm shift, because I think for all of us, the first time moving to everything being on your phone, we viewed it as the, ul- the ultimate convenience. Everything's right there in my pocket. But when you remove the interface friction and you can just talk to it, um, it, it changed everything again. And so that's one example. I'd say timers in my kitchen, alarms on my clock. There's so many ways where I feel it's completely less friction and, and revolutionized the way you interface with common tasks where the phone is now actually you know, the, the mo- a more frictious way to do it. Yeah. Let's turn uh, to future state. This technology is still in, in its infancy, so it's a little risky but also interesting to project uh, into the future. When you think three to five years out, which is not so far away. Where do you see voice technology taking us? I feel a lot like voice is still very much in its infancy, even though it started in the 60s. <laughs> it really has um, been, a, been on, a, on a growth curve for the last three or four years, but there's still so far to go. So, a lot, so much of how we interact with voice technology today is a little bit command and control. And where I, where I see it going is being a lot more conversational. So... In, in the way that you know, humans interact, we pick up on each other's uh, implicit cues, we leverage context, things we know about each other, conversations we've had in the past. We take shortcuts, we use visual cues, but all of this allows us to more naturally understand what each other means without having to express ourselves you know, explicitly and reprovide all of our history every time we, we make a statement or a request to each other. I see agents, artificial intelligence, um, systems that you talk to becoming much more conversational over the next even one to two years. You should be surprised, I think, hopefully delighted by how well they understand what you meant rather than what you said and can take action on that. So, you know, examples of that would be things like throw away the remote control for your TV and control your TV with voice. How would you ask another human who was holding the remote control to do it? Hey, put on the, put, you know, put on the Jays game you know, let's see what the score is. You know, that's sort of a request versus having to say something more explicit like put on CTV or something that's more, more concrete. So having, having the system understand those maybe less or more ambiguous requests and be able to act on them 
uh, in an intelligent way the way a human would, I think is, is one of the ways. The second way is, uh, I think, more complex requests. So again, sort of building on the, instead of a single request, like set a timer, what time is it put on the ball game, I want to go to Mexico. I'm going to need a hotel, a flight, um, some activities planned during the day, maybe some restaurant recommendations. I'm going to have a bit more of a conversation with my assistant the way I might an actual assistant in the real world to get all the pieces nailed down and have some choices, you know, get some reviews and input and make some decisions and actually get stuff booked. So let's you know, go and have those more complex interactions. So you, you've painted a good picture of uh, where we might be living uh, three to five years from now. What, in very general terms, are the big engineering challenges to getting there? So I think the, we talked a little bit about things like context, complex activities, a more natural dialogue between you and the, and the technology, so a more natural interface. All of these come with uh, really large science and engineering challenges to, to get them from where they are today to where... Give, give us a sense of what you mean by complex activities. So, well, again, I, I think I used uh, booking a vacation as an example of that, but maybe a long-running conversation where multiple things... You have multiple goals throughout the course of that conversation. So there's probably analogies in banking as well where... You want to check your balance. I guess you can't deposit checks entirely with your voice, but... Um, you could transfer money with your voice. Sure. It's a multi, that's a multi-step process, and verifying that you've got the right person at the other end and that the, the, the funds went through. And so you could think of that as a more complex conversation where at any point, you know, um, the conversation could follow many different paths. Let's talk a bit about which sectors should be thinking most about the opportunities here. Where, where, where do you see the biggest opportunities near term? I think everywhere. Um, and this, you know, this is kind of, it would be like saying which industries should be looking at using computers now that you can put it on your desktop and, and control it with a mouse and a keyboard, or which industries should be thinking about mobile now that um, you have that computer in your pocket. I think which industries should be thinking about voice is all of them. Voice, the interesting thing with voice is all of those predecessors, we as humans need to learn how to use the mouse, learn what a QWERTY keyboard was, or all the other crazy variants of keyboards that are out there. With voice, if we can truly achieve natural conversational experience for interfacing with it, you don't need to learn. You're, instead of us learning how to use the computer, the computer's learning how to, how to interface with us, and that makes it immediately accessible to everybody in the world who, who has language skills. So it's, like, it's just a natural place to go. So to, give, to, to get specific, I guess... Uh, industries where I think this will be revolutionary or at least like have a major impact. Healthcare is one of them, and there's so many different aspects to that. There's healthcare in your own home, uh, managing your own health state with technology. There's healthcare as a patient. Um, imagine the you know, replacing the little button on your bed with the ability to control everything. You're bedridden. You want to control your environment, get the help you need, know when you need to take your meds. Kind of go down the list and just see all of the different places where voice is a much easier way to interact with those environments than a lot of the things that we've built to date. So, and I think you can kind of go, go industry to industry, hospitality industry. I uh, think about even restaurants. I, you know, I, at the SeaTac airport now, they've put a little uh, device on every table in some of the restaurants, which has three buttons on it, you know, like bring my bill, I need service. Um, and I just think, well, why not just go all the way and, and ask, say what you want, like, hey, I, I bring me another Coke, whatever it is, and get all the way to, you know, removing the friction of, of, uh, of whatever's in the way of getting to what it is you're trying to accomplish. Yeah, or charge my bill to my MasterCard or my Visa. Or the if, table over there. Or the t- yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
So that leads to a, maybe a more foundational question about how voice is fundamentally different from text in terms of communications, because many people would just see it as a faster way than typing. It, it is a different, um, a different input modality. So the way we write and express ourselves in written form, whether it's text with all of the shortcuts and, and symbols we use, or even long, long form writing versus voice, we use different words. We express ourselves differently. The sentences we construct are completely different when we speak than when we than when we text. So, for, to me, as a you know, from a computer science perspective, they're completely different inputs. But once you understand what the words are and the structure of the sentences, they both have the same next level problem, which is the natural language understanding. Both of them, then you have to figure out the meaning. Knowing the words is never enough. So they're kind of different versions of the same input, but they're. I think we structure them completely differently. Mm. Maybe you can share a bit about what you're trying to build here in Toronto, because this is not well known. You've got 8,000 people now working on Alexa around the world. Toronto is one of the key hubs for you. Actually, the the team that's here in Toronto, and some of them are actually in the room, they work on something we call the Alexa hybrid engine. So they're, they're focused on solving some of the problems like, what happens when my internet connection goes down? Or if I'm in the car and I go through a tunnel and I lose my connectivity and I still want to control, I want to turn off my wipers and change the terrestrial radio station or the satellite radio station, which don't require internet. So we're trying to figure out how to take the speech recognition, natural language understanding, and text-to-speech voice and business logic and shrink it down into something that will fit onto a very small uh, footprint. Uh, One of the things we have in in market today that that team has launched is the capability to work offline. If you have the Alexa Hub, the uh, Echo Plus, which controls your smart home, and your internet goes down, you can still turn on and off your lights and control things in your home even though you don't have the internet connection. All of that's running locally on the device. So the team here is um, focused on those types of problems. And why, why Toronto? For me, this is home. <laughs> so I, it's kind of a market I understand. I think between the universities, um, the programs in engineering, the diverse industry of experienced scientists and engineers working in various fields, there's a great opportunity to hire really smart people to help us innovate. And also, it's, this is kind of in our DNA so um, my team is in eight locations, six countries today. We tend to want to go where the talent is and find a way to incorporate them into our team um, rather than what I did, which was relocate, which is a much higher friction. So it's easier to get teams excited and hired and working for you if you can do it where they live already. What are the other big challenges in voice that uh, excite you in the, uh, in the next couple of years? Uh, well, I think we, we touched on a lot of them. Um, I think just sort of scaling this up to more languages. And, and I guess I can't underplay how hard it's going to be to get to the point where conversing with a computer feels a lot like talking to a human. I just think there are so many big, interesting challenges, like micro-challenges within that Uber goal that we'll need to solve to get there. And those ones are, I think, the most interesting and exciting just as we move to, to wrap up, I wonder if you can sum up what organizations, be it like an RBC or uh, small businesses out there, should be thinking about. What, uh, what conversations should we be having in the next while about voice? I, I do, I, as you alluded to earlier, uh, for small businesses, I do think it's important that everybody start thinking about what's our, what's our strategy for this, this new interface, this new way of communicating with technology. And I think it looks different in every industry. So... It's not going to be, here's the playbook. We used it in you know, hospitality. Go and apply the same playbook in, uh, uh, in banking. And I also do think those user interface challenges that I alluded to earlier, I mean, <laughs> I've seen some really 
terribly designed voice user interfaces in, in skills um, or in other services um, that drive you nuts. And I think uh, sort of emerging a set of knowledge about how to build great user interfaces using voice is going to be a key part of making it accessible to everyone and not you know, alienating your, your consumer or annoying them. So those are important things to consider. It's like not just how can I use the tech in my business, but how do I use it in a way that's fluid and, and not, not going to drive my customers away and annoy them. Yeah. Not just a technology you know, wedge to solve a problem. That's a great, uh, great way of framing it. Al, again, thank you for uh, being here. Congratulations on all you've you. built with Alexa. Can't wait to see where you and your, uh, your team take it in the years ahead. Great. Thank Thanks you. for having me. Thanks for downloading RBC Disruptors. Our show this week was produced and edited by Vocalfry Studios. You can reach us at RBC Disruptors at rbc.com and join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag RBC Disruptors. Thanks so much for listening.